welcome to Season 3 of the Irish Baptist College podcast. I'm your host, Davey Ellison. I'm the Director of Training at the College, and I'm excited to bring you this brand new season of podcast episodes. Recently, we invited you, our listeners, to ask us anything, and you did. Uh, This season's all about answering those questions, and the hope is that through these episodes, you might find some helpful answers to your questions. But more importantly, however, we hope that rather than simply offering answers to questions, we might also learn how to think biblically and reason logically. Uh, Today's guest is our esteemed principal, Edwin Yurt, and so I'm glad to have you with me today, Edwin. Thank you, Debbie. Um, We are recording on a Monday, uh, just after a a lovely sunny weekend. Uh, Did you get up to anything exciting over the past weekend? Yes, I retraced my steps back to where I was, first of all, in the pastorate in County Donegal. So we spent a very pleasant couple of days up there. Excellent. Very good. Certainly the weekend for it anyway. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) We did think you were in a better mood this morning than normal, (laughs) but... (laughs) Well, um, it's great to have you here. We have a short list of questions to work our way through. Um, The first question is a general question, which we're going to ask everybody um, on the podcast uh, over this series. And uh, someone asked, uh, who has been the greatest academic influence on your work? Um, so what academic uh, has been the greatest influence? Or at least I'm assuming it's going to be an academic that's had an influence on your work. Yes, well, I've stuck to the, the academic word in the question. I, I want to answer the question in the plural because it seems to me really impossible to identify just one single influence. Mm. Uh, in my areas of interest in teaching, I have obtained most help from Brian Chappell in homiletics. His Christ-centered preaching is a core text for the IBC module, and it seems to me a real source of treasure in this subject area. And then in ministry pastoral subjects, a book that I I always go back to is Charles Bridges' The Christian Ministry. 1830 was the year of publication. Uh, It seems a long time ago now, the Dark Ages, as far as some people are concerned, but that book really is gold dust. And uh, so it addresses a whole range of aspects of ministry, calling and practice. And it's a book that I often use in in teaching a module here. And then in biblical systematic theology, I find myself referring again and again to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and also the writings of John Frame. These two always have something useful to say on virtually every topic of interest in the sphere of academic theology. Excellent, excellent. And obviously those last two you've mentioned, they always have something useful. Um, what exactly is it about Chapel that kind of stands out whenever you think about his his work on preaching? Well, I, I suppose what lies in the background of Chapel's work is that he is a practitioner. Mm. And so if you've had the privilege of hearing Brian Chapel preach, then you can see that he's not just somebody who is sitting in an ivory tower theorizing, uh, but he is a, a fine preacher in his own right. Uh, the, the book says what it, it does what it says in the tin, it's Christ-centered preaching. And so he enables the, the reader to think seriously about how our uh, preaching principles and homiletics is the science of preaching, how those principles uh, relate to the unfolding of Christ in all the Bible. That's really helpful and obviously something that we are keen to press here, mm. that uh, it's about practitioners and uh, not just teachers. Yeah. 
And uh, Charles Bridges, I have to hold my hands up and confess that I've not read this, mm. um, but I've no- noted a number of people recommending it. Let me ask a cheeky question. Mm-hmm. Is it not a bit outdated for the pastor's ministry in the 21st century? No, it's one of the Christian classics in my view, and uh, they are perennial. Uh, I suppose everybody has their, their old favourites, but uh, the... Uh, the advice that he has there is advice that st- has stood the test of time. Okay. And uh, our students, I think, are benefiting, well, they, they testify to this, are benefiting uh, from the, the wisdom of Bridges in a, in a number of areas. I, I think, for example, of the whole area of the development of character. He has a lot mm. to say about that, not just about the areas of responsibility of pastoral ministry. Okay. Great. Excellent. Well, um, there's a few new books for people to add to their list if they've not uh, come across um, some of those authors uh, and some of those books. Um, The next question, I suppose, tackles this issue of being academic. Is there a danger in being an academic that that you drift away from uh, your faith or you start to treat your faith and scripture uh, in a very kind of cold way? Um, So... Do you have any tips um, on how to maintain academic rigor and white hot devotion to God? And I think this is something that lots of our students do speak to us about and wrestle with at different points um, during their journey through college. Well, it, it is a tricky balancing act when we're busy working in a, an academic environment. The strength, however, of the Irish Baptist College context is that we place a very strong emphasis on theology as an act of devotion mm. and theology in the service of the church. And that means that all our, our teaching and our learning is designed to lead us to worship. Uh, it seems to me uh, that getting cl- this clear in our minds, that uh, integral contact between theology and worship uh, is something that helps us to avoid the danger of study for its own sake. I mentioned Wayne Grudem earlier, and it's interesting when you look at his systematic theology, uh, he consistently throughout that volume uh, employs, uh, for example, some hymnody at the end mm-hmm. of a section, mm-hmm. and that shows that he's someone who sees theology uh, as being in the, the service of the church and our relationship to God. In addition, it, it's very important to structure our reading plan in our personal devotions to ensure that we're engaging with a range of material, and not simply the more technical and theological Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that connection, I would also recommend variety in devotional exercises so that we're not enslaved to any particular resource or any particular method. Okay. And whenever you talk about devotional, you're talking about Bible reading or just personal reading of other books or a bit of both there? I think that's a combination, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, obviously, Bible reading is at the heart of it, uh, but I'm uh, an advocate of, of reading widely and, and, and reading other devotional material as well mm-hmm. that will, will help to bolster uh, our uh, active devotion to God. Yeah, yeah, variety is the key in so mm-hmm. many areas of life. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I can add to that as well and I can add another book recommendation, um, one that we do recommend to our students and one which kind of highlights all that you have been saying already, Edwin, uh, and that is How to Stay Christian in Seminary by David Mathis and Jonathan Parnell. Um, Obviously the seminary is a bit of an Americanism there, Hmm. but um, lots of great principles um, along the lines of what you've been outlining. Um, So we want to try to 
be academically rigorous, um, stretch our minds, learn much without um, losing our devotion to God. And uh, that can maybe be hard whenever we dig into some difficult and tricky theological topics like the next one. <laughs> so hopefully we're going to see this in practice. So uh, the next question we got was um, about eternal generation. Um, so maybe we could have a very brief description of what, what this is talking about before we go on to ask the question. Well, I'm picking up the word brief here. I'm not sure I can be brief on this, but it is a topic, obviously, that has stirred up a great deal of interest and discussion uh, in recent times. The nub of the question is, if Jesus was begotten in the womb of Mary, then was there also an analogous event in the eternal sphere? In other words, if his earthly existence had a beginning, can the same be said of his eternal existence? Okay. Excellent. That's very succinct. Um, that's great. So the question is, in exactly what way is the Son begotten or generated if that does not mean that he began or derived his life from the Father? Okay, let, let me begin with the Nicene Creed 381, which made this confession. And maybe folk are, are familiar with these words. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. And so the obvious question is, what does that mean? The terms Father and Son bring to our minds the idea of begetting. But trying to apply these ideas to the being of God appears problematic. So if we take what we understand in the human sphere and then try to apply that mm. to the uh, divine eternal relationships, it can become problematic. Biblical support for the idea of eternal generation is alleged to come from John 1.18 and probably particularly John 3.16 where the phrase only begotten son is used. However, the Greek word that is used there, monogenes, can equally be translated unique, the unique Son of God. Mm -hmm. And some of the Bible translations actually employ that. So how then should we think about this idea? Well, although critics sometimes present this doctrine as if it depends on a handful of dubious proof texts, the biblical evidence for eternal generation is quite clear. It's rooted in broad patterns of scriptural judgment regarding the unique nature of the eternal relationship of the Son to the Father. And so I, I, I think of prominent textual support in, for example, John 1 verse 1, in the beginning mm -hmm. was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.18, same chapter, the only God, the text says, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Then if you move on four chapters to John 5, 26, uh, the text says, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Mm. And then a bit further on in John's Gospel, you'll notice how uh, much of this evidence is Johannine. John 17, verse 21, Jesus says, Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Now when you take those uh, texts cumulatively, it's true then to say that there never was a time when the Father was not the Father. Mm. And similarly, correspondingly, there never was a time when the Son was not the Son. This is the eternal reality of the being of God. 
So when the creed affirms eternal generation uh, in the quotation that I gave earlier, it does so to say something very clear and very true about God, but also does so to protect the theology of the sonship of Christ against heresy. Mm. And uh, when we think of the period of the early church then, uh, this question of the relationship of the Son to the Father and of the two natures in one person was really the hot potato of the patristic period. Uh, so uh, the, the creed does this. It makes this very clear statement to protect the sonship of Christ against heresy, such as that of Arius, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, Arius, who was the, uh, the founder, if you like, of Arianism, uh, who could not accept the eternal generation of the Son. So eternal generation is, if you like, the communication of his essence from father to son in all eternity. J.V. Fesco, who is a, a, a modern theologian and commentator, puts it like this. In this communication of the essence from the father to the son, there is no signal loss in this. Now, you, we can all get very frustrated uh, sometimes by loss of signal. You know, we're trying to make a phone call or something. Fesco puts it, I think this is uh, quite helpful. There is no signal loss in this, no stretching of the power cable. So there's some loss involved in this communication of, of the essence of the sun. No, the sun is of the same substance with the mm. father, uh, is the way the creed puts it. Uh, and he has been this for all eternity. But the problem is when you, uh, and I I, uh, alluded to this earlier, the problem is uh, when you talk about fathers and sons in an analogical kind of way, thinking about our human relationships and try to apply that to the divine relationships, then you inevitably end up on a pathway that is fraught with danger. Hmm. But having said all that, uh, there is no question but that the notion of eternal generation is bound up in mystery. Mm. Uh, and so the, there's no sense in which I or any other theologian could could sit here today and give an answer that will probably satisfy uh, every question that could be asked about this particular issue. We're dealing with the intra-Trinitarian relationships here. And so we need to be very cautious in the way that we approach our exploration. So I always appreciate what John Frame says uh, about this, and I I mentioned Frame earlier. John Frame says in this connection, uh, we ought to employ a certain amount of reverend agnosticism. Mm. Uh, That is very appropriate here, he says. Now, uh, if you want to develop your thinking on this area a little bit further, I want to commend an online conversation uh, that has been held between Matthew Barrett and J.V. Fesco, the guy I quoted from a moment ago, on YouTube entitled, What is Eternal Generation? Uh, And obviously, for the purpose of our podcast here, this is a very short kind of Mm. explanation. But if you want more detail, then that conversation between Barrett and Fesco on YouTube, you'll find very helpful. Excellent. We'll try to include a link to that in our show notes. um, So you'll be able to go straight to that. Really helpful. I think that note on mystery is really helpful, thinking mm. about this and uh, having that reverence. Um, if we can answer all of our questions about God, um, I think he ceases to be God um, because we can comprehend him. Um, so that's that's really helpful. I, I think the other thing is 
trying to think about that which is unclear in light of that which is clear. And I mm. think those references that you've just taken us through from John make it very clear yeah. that um, that the Son is equal with the Father yeah. um, again and again and again. And that, that's clear not just in John, but other places. Yeah. Um, so that's very helpful. Um, going to move on to uh, another juicy question. Um, so uh, we, we've had a question uh, coming in about separation of church and state. And uh, I'm going to add another one onto that uh, about just handling conflict um, within churches. Uh, so in our Association of Baptist Churches, on our Statement of Faith um, under the church, we have the separation of church and state. And I imagine that these questions uh, have arisen from the experience of the previous uh, two years. But someone has uh, asked, have Baptists abandoned their belief in the separation of church and state by restricting worship and failing to worship in person at times over the past two years? And so that's the question that came in. Um, I don't know how you want to handle this, if you want to push back on the question as it's been asked or whether you want to try to just answer that uh, question as it stands, Edwin. Well, uh, I'm assuming that the, the question is an absolutely sincere one. There doesn't appear to be uh, in the question any stated position on this, but I, yeah. I think it's important to begin uh, with a, a statement of a Baptist principle uh, historically. Uh, and that principle, of course, is the separation of church and state. It was endorsed down the centuries by, for example, Thomas Hillwis, who in 1612 said, Our Lord the King is but an earthly king and has no authority as a king but on earthly causes, for men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. So that was mm. early Baptist, Thomas Hillwis. And then also John Smith, the forerunner of the Baptist movement in England, speaking of the magistrate, in other words, of the, uh, of the government of the day, said this, The magistrate is not by virtue of his office to meddle with religion or matters of conscience, to force or compel anybody to this or that form of religion or doctrine, but to leave the Christian religion free to every man's conscience. So two headline statements there from early Baptists, uh, and those positions are based on texts such as, uh, and I, I'll just give two at this point, Matthew 22, verse 21, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, mm. words of the Lord Jesus. And then from Acts 5, 29, words of the apostles, when they had been forbidden to preach in this name, they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Mm. Now, the question then, with that by way of background, the question then that we're faced with here in the last couple of years has been this question regarding the pandemic restrictions, mm. which has produced real difficulty for us. Some Christians think churches have capitulated to the government, and that's the, the essence of the question here. Yeah. Uh, and they've done that in a biblically unwarranted way, whereas others have been quite content to follow the advice of the government to have certain restrictions placed upon public worship. Well, my judgment on this matter is that, uh, first of all, leadership has been placed in an unenviable position, mm. trying to walk a line that accommodates two groups of people. And uh, these two groups are the extremes. There are a number of people in the middle on this subject, but the extremes are the very fearful members. And uh, we, I think in all our churches, have a number of people like that who are particularly mm. fearful. And then others who are at the opposite end of the scale who are very blasé in their approach uh, down to the very questioning of 
uh, the existence of a pandemic in the first place at, at one end of that yeah. extreme. Therefore, it's important that we understand that we're trying to hold together two principles here. Uh, the first is that the Bible clearly teaches that we should respect and obey the authorities that have been placed over us. Mm. Because the authorities that exist, Paul says, have been put in place by God, been instituted by God. Mm. The other side is that we should obey Christ rather than men, to quote the apostles again. And so if there is a clash between what the, the, the state requires and what God requires, then the apostles say, we cannot stop preaching about what we have seen and heard. We must obey God. So then, in a time of public emergency, to what extent do we have the duty to gather as Christians physically? That's the real question that we have to wrestle through biblically yeah. and in all conscience. And I think that that means we've got to do a number of things. First of all, we have to ask the question, what it is that we've actually been prevented from doing? That's very important. We are not, in my judgment, prevented from believing. We are not prevented from preaching. Hmm. We are not prevented from gathering online. There are some things we can't do if we can't gather physically. I understand that. But there is a margin between what we can do and what we can't do. Hmm. And so we've got to work that through in our individual situations. Secondly, it's also very important to think through whether churches are being discriminated against in the wider picture of society. So, uh, if what this was all about the past two years has been response to a national and global emergency, then here's the question. Have we as Christians and as the Christian church been wrongly treated compared to others? And the answer to that seems to me we were not. Hmm. Churches, along with a whole range of other institutions, were being asked to act responsibly in the face of a rampant disease. Thirdly, I also think that in how we approach this, we've got to be very careful not to bind the consciences of others and say that they have to agree with, with us on every detail. Hmm. So let me just give an example of that. If, if we're saying there is a duty to gather, even if there is a national emergency going on, then we've got to ask the subsidiary question, what are we saying to vulnerable people in our churches if we insist upon that? Are they disobeying Christ because they make that judgment mm. that they're fearful and feel that they should protect life? Pastoral leadership in this context has therefore got to take account of the different opinions amongst God's people before we start commanding them what they've got to do. And it is a very fine line to walk at times. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, uh, for those who are in leadership, uh, you're very much in the public eye on this matter. One quick uh, historical allusion, uh, if you would permit me at this point, Davey, uh, and that is to say that Christians have been in situations a little bit like this before. Mm. So I think of Martin Luther uh, with the emergence of a pandemic, which was known as the Black Death, which came to Wittenberg in 1527. And Luther wrote a very interesting letter to Johann Hess, who was a pastor at Breslau. And Luther's letter, which I, I, I won't take time to, to even quote from here, but, but Luther's letter to Johann Hess is full of helpful practical advice 
on how Christians and churches should conduct themselves uh, in a time of national mm. emergency due to a pandemic. And you can read the full text of that letter at christianitytoday.com. And it's quite surprising how contemporary that appears given what we've experienced in the past two years. Now, one final comment on this, uh, and that is having said all of that and recognizing the fine line that leaders have to walk, uh, there has been no one happier than me that we've been able to meet again in person and get back to some semblance of normality. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure you're not alone in, in that as well. Um, I suppose just a secondary question you've kind of touched on a little bit, but advice for leaders within churches on how to approach this. You know, as we emerge out of it, there's still two groups with two different, um, and I suppose this is true on all issues, that there's always people with differences of opinions. Um, and just how, how do we navigate that uh, as leaders? Uh, yeah, leaders have a responsibility to lead, so, so they can't sit back and do nothing and hope that everything mm. will just turn out for the best. So sometimes difficult decisions have to be made. It seems to me that at the present time, with the relaxation of restrictions, leaders should move forward, albeit with a measure of caution. Yeah. And I know that in our Baptist churches, we are independent and autonomous, sometimes fiercely so. But I, I do think that we need to move forward in tandem with mm. the, the relaxation uh, uh, of the restrictions. There is always a principle that underlines uh, our response to this at a personal level. And that is what I call the Philippians principle. Consider others better than yourselves. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that you simply bow to everything that everybody says to you. Yeah. But if that kind of spirit is in our hearts and in our program of leadership, then I think we won't be too far away from the mind of Christ on this. Yeah, certainly being generous to others is always going to get us further than uh, than doing the opposite, um, for sure. Well, I think that's helpful and uh, I'm glad you were willing to put your head above the parapet on that one and not me. Um, but I think that's been helpful, Edwin. Thank you. I guess we can also make that uh, letter from Luther uh, available yeah, uh, in by the show way of a link as well. to, to folk on the podcast. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, this uh, final question uh, will perhaps be a little bit uh, easier um, because it's a little bit hypothetical. But uh, if you had, uh, someone is interested to know that if you had unlimited time and resources, what academic work would you love to produce? What would you like uh, to be your magnum opus if uh -huh. you had the time and resources to produce something? Yes, David Luke, I think, would keep me going about this because uh, some of um, our listeners may know that I have more than a passing interest in the history of World War I um, <laughs> uh, and military strategy and that kind of thing. But uh, there are some very fine volumes out there on that. I certainly wouldn't uh, uh, start to write about that. My areas of interest in recent years theologically have been the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of scripture. Mm. And I've done a little bit of research in both. But if I had to select an area to write in, it would probably be the area of pastoral care that is part of my teaching responsibility at IBC mm -hmm. uh, and is, of course, an area of perennial importance for Christian leaders today. So I, I'd probably say leadership and the role of the pastor particularly, something in that area. Okay, okay. Excellent. Well, uh, you may find a listener uh, trying to give you unlimited time and resources mm. to, to put that into print. Um, 
but if you do want to hear some of Edwin's thoughts on that, um, maybe you can sign up at the college and come along to some of the pastoral studies classes, and uh, that'll certainly be touched upon um, at different points there. Well, thank you, Edwin, for joining us and uh, for answering those questions. Thank and uh, thank you for listening to the Irish Baptist College podcast. Uh, the college is committed to training men and women for gospel service here in Ireland and across the globe. If you're interested in preparing for ministry at a theological college that is academically rigorous and vocationally focused, then I want to invite you to explore the opportunities available to study theology at the Irish Baptist College. You can do so by visiting irishbaptistcollege.org to find out more and I'm delighted to tell you that the college is now open for applications for September 22. So we hope to see you soon uh, and hear you and you'll hear us again on the podcast soon as well. Thank you. Thank you.